Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. We came to the eastern edge of the airfield and halted in the shade of a scrub thicket. Throwing down our gear, we fell on the deck, sweating, panting, exhausted. I had no more than reached for a canteen when a rifle bullet snapped overhead. He's close, get down, said an officer. The rifle cracked again. Sounds like he's right through there a little way, the officer said. I'll get him, said Howard Neese. Okay, go ahead, but watch yourself. Neese, a Gloucester veteran, grabbed his rifle and took off into the scrub with the nonchalance of a hunter going after a rabbit in a bush. He angled to one side so as to steal up on the sniper from the rear. We waited a few anxious moments, then heard two M1 shots. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I know you're confused, like, wait a minute, it's not Sunday, Don, what happened? Well, life happens, and so here we all are together, hanging out with us from Texas. He returned, prodigal son, Jeff Copsetta, and once again, joining us from Alabama with his new headset, looking like Nancy the Time Life Operator from all the commercials from 1994. If you weren't around then, joke's on you. Henry Sledge, how you doing tonight, Henry? Doing pretty good, man. Nah, just the microphone looks great. I was just every time I see that style of the headset, it reminds me of those old Time Life commercials. And every <laughs> operator was named Nancy. I don't know why, but that was hi. I'm Nancy, the Time Life operator, and I want to talk. Seventh about- planet from the sun is called Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, since we're in such a good mood, um, I want to take a quick step over, and Jeff, you can join me if you want to. We need to discuss and take a quick trip to Whiskey Corner real quick. Um, it's been a while since I've had any bourbon on the show tonight because uh, I ran out. But I have a reenactment next weekend. I got a flask I got to fill. But I want to honor this bottle of Larceny Weeded Bourbon. And you say, Don, what's so important about this bottle of Larceny Weeded Bourbon? I went over to the liquor store down the street. And I walked in and the place smelled horrible smelled like rotten liquor uh there's glass all over the place there was piles of crown royal bag and broken bottles in the trash can and i said what happened somebody throw a fit in here and he said no worse the entire shelf along the right wall collapsed and all the bottles came pouring down on the ground and shattering and this was the only bottle of larceny weeded bourbon to survive and as we were ringing up i looked at him i said yeah it's a Shame it couldn't happen to the cheap vodka shelf. He said, nope, it was all the scotch and all the whiskey. So basically the most expensive stuff they had in there. So, Steve, if you don't mind, I need to borrow your cup here and just, uh, you know, get the show started right. So we're going to transfer this ice in here. I'm going to oh, pour myself be... a drink, and we are going to get started. Um, real quick, <laughs> how have you guys been? Apparently not as well as you. Well, I haven't started yet. We'll, we'll see in 25 minutes when I'm slurring my speech and, and putting out the wrong podcast promo. Not this anything controversial, but let me tell you something. That's on my other podcast. You want to hear the controversial stuff, you got to go to D-410 and listen to no, What's I, Your Head podcast. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> Jeff, I'm glad you're back. Yeah, we, we were talking about that, and, and then Don, you know, rudely interrupted us with, you know, the beginning of this uh, episode, <laughs> but um, it, it feels like it's been too long, you know, when, since we've all been together, or like Henry likes to refer to it as our threesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a bad choice of words. Hey, it's 2021, you can't question, you just gotta let it roll. But yeah, it's good to it's good to be here, and yeah, I, I can't wait to to hear Don start you know slurring his words. It'll be it'll be uh, you know Dan Abernathy with Digital Ten Four Productions and everything. <laughs> well, it'll be good. As the, as those are the keen I can see, my last name's misspelled on Zoom. Every time I start a new meeting, if I don't go in there and fix it, it's misspelled. And at this point, I, 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 just I actually don't just care. realized that. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's been misspelled since day one. So Jeff, yeah. you. You were busy uh, last couple of weekends. You you kind of got an early start on me as far as the living history season goes because you and I we live in hot ass climates, and so when the rest of the 
while the rest of the nation is doing all the reenactments in spring and summertime, uh, me being in Florida and you being in Texas, it's like, no, it's too hot for wool. Too hot. We wait until the wintertime and, and the fall. And so you've got a head start on me. Last week, you went down to, um, well, actually, you've done a few things. Why don't you share with the audience the, uh, the cool stuff you've been doing and the great photos that people can see on your Instagram page? Yeah, yeah. Well, like you said, I got a head start on you because I'm the one-up guy and I didn't want to be Trump biased, so that's number one. Um, and uh, yeah, I, uh, we here here in the the beautiful little town of, of Burnett, Texas, there it's a, there's a lot of uniqueness around here for a lot of reasons. You know, the the history uh, where the Blue Bonnet capital of Texas, you know, a little blue flower, people come from all over the world to see in the springtime. Uh, it, geologically, we're very unique, and, and one of the things, one, one of my favorite things about this town is we have what's called the Austin Steam Train Association that comes up from Austin. Uh, it was a, uh, an actual steam-powered engine, you know, built about 100 years ago. Uh, right now, they're having to use um, uh, a, more of a modernized diesel uh, from the early 60s while the steam engine is being repaired. Um, but it brings up, oh gosh, 300 to 350 people uh, into Burnet every Saturday. Uh, it's about a two-hour trip from Austin up to Burnet, and all of the cars now are all streamlined. Um, parlor cars they've got a um uh i don't want to say a diner but more like a concession car uh and some really nice uh coaches you know streamlined coaches that are all climate controlled now all you know all the, the brushed you know silver polished aluminum coaches you saw from the 30s and 40s uh they've got about a dozen of them or so so and i used to do a lot of stuff with them they're a great nonprofit. we've done some fundraisers with them before and some of the other organizations I've been a part of. And I just kind of said, Hey, you know, I, I've been, when the museum here was closed in COVID, I thought, well, I can go out and set up a table or two, bring my old car out and meet them right when they got off the train at the depot. They could see some artifacts. I could hand out some brochures and say, Hey, when the museum opens, come back and see us, you know, cause they're only in town for about two hours. So you got enough time to eat lunch, buy some overpriced antiques and burn it. And then, take the train home well let's be honest so, if they're not overpriced they're not antiques that's right exactly so um i just happened to ask hey you know there's a couple of us dressed up would you mind if we hop the train next saturday bring some other stuff and, and do a photo shoot and they said oh my gosh absolutely just you know sharing the advertising tag us or whatever so i did that and now that's leading to an idea i'm trying to put together um you know, a buddy of mine who we're going to have on the show here pretty soon has done that troops and trains program that the Strasburg Railroad does up in Pennsylvania. Now, I've ridden that train, but not that program. And, and that's a strictly, it's not open to the public. It's apparently it's strictly for reenactors to ride a train, all World War II, all 1940s uh, menu on the cars. That's and awesome. 1940s music. Then they get off somewhere and have like a big hangar dance. Um, I wanted to kind of do something like that here, but something open to the public. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Batfish, uh, which is a sub, up, it's a World War II submarine up in Oklahoma. I know some guys who reenact on it. Once you go inside of a sub, you don't know if you're in the middle of a grassy field in Oklahoma or underwater. Sure. So basically, they open it up, I think it's a couple times a year, and people actually get to go in the submarine and see all these reenactors at their battle stations, you know, as if the sub was underwater in World War II. So... I want to develop a program like that in this train car. I'm going to try to work a deal where they'll just drop the car off here and burn it, leave it for a week. And, you know, they're going to have to have a conductor up here to help me do the program. They have to have a representative, obviously, to open the car and reliability and everything. But, uh, you know, talk a little bit about train travel in World War II, how important it was, the history of that particular car. Because, um, all, like I said, all these cars are pushing 90, 100 years old. And... Um, and then when people go in the car, it opens up into this everybody's first person. You know, I went 12, 15 reenactors in there sitting. And, it, and it's kind of a parlor car. So there's some sleeping quarters. There's like some dorms with the beds that fold down. And then so it's like a real narrow uh, walkway. And then it opens up and there's like a, like a coffee bar. I think they have like a little ice cream machine there and a couple tables and chairs, you know, by the windows there. So it's just a beautiful setting for people to kind of come in and see what it, basically walk on a train car as if it was going down the tracks during World War II. So I'm mentioning that because I'd love to get some reenactors, you know, that would be interested in that. You don't have to do much. You just kind of got to know what you're wearing, who you're representing, 
and be able to kind of have a conversation with guys. Nothing scripted, really. You know, nothing like that. Just just have conversations. Guys talking about, oh, yeah, flying over New Guinea. Oh, man, yeah, oh, Black Alley over here, you know, whatever. Um, so that's what I was trying to do. And then, of course, uh, this past Saturday, Pumpkins and Paratroopers was just basically Hold on, before you, a before you go on to that, Before you go to that, I want to stop on your train thing. One of the cool things that would be – would. It, the cool thing to do, obviously have a couple of people portraying vets coming back from overseas and telling those stories, but maybe get one or two of the younger guys um, because of being on the train and the time of, of the, the time of the country, it would be cool. Obviously you wouldn't have to have it scripted, but they can kind of improv some stuff, give them a baseline. Hey, you're from Oklahoma, you're from Alabama. And they could talk about how this is the first, not only is it the first time on the train, but the first time they've ever left home because most of those cats had never left their small towns before joining the service and getting on the train and traveling across the country. And they could kind of talk about the experiences they've had and the things they've seen, how they never realized how big the country was and things like that. And so that'd be something kind of cool too. Not only have the guys coming back from overseas, but having the replacements going out for the first time who just got through boot camp. And now this is their first time seeing our country. I think that's a great part for Henry. Yeah. I don't think he's ever left Alabama. I don't know. <laughs> no, Henry's a world traveler. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know how to drive a car, so. <laughs> still, He still rolls down the street. He does it like the possum. He rolls everywhere in his lawn tractor. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so just finished up a nice little fall program here at the Island Lakes Air Museum. Uh, I don't know. We saw about 100 or so people. Uh, kids came out, decorated pumpkins, had a lot of fun, handed out some dog tags for prizes, custom made, you know, that said pumpkins, paratroopers, first place, whatever. Oh, that's cool. Uh, had Aravac land for us, and, and it's really going to be a good segue coming into December. We're going to put together a real nice uh, a Pearl Harbor commemorative program, but it's going to be kind of first responder centric. And, and I may have mentioned that on the on this podcast before, but I want to do kind of a it's a somber day. You know, December 7, 1941. But, you know, I think we stand to make the argument that that's the day that this country got its identity. Mm -hmm. That's the day that we became who we are. That's the day that America emerged as what it is today. And um, thanks to people like Henry's dad and, and you know, 16 million uh, other men and women that wore the uniform, because if not for that, who knows? Um, so it's tough to celebrate on a day like that. Um, because it's such a somber time. It was, you know, such a, an emotional time for America. It was such a time of so much uncertainty. And people don't realize that because we always look back because we know we won the war. But if you really truly step back into the, into that weekend in early December of 41, you know, we're, we're ranked 17th in the world militarily. Guys are training with broomsticks for machine guns. I mean, we're, we're not there. We are not, there is no way statistically we should have won that war in 1941 when we entered there was just no way um but obviously we pulled it off so i want to do a celebration i want to get let's get past you know pulling on those heartstrings um let's celebrate the men and women who inherently have the risk every day they put on the uniform that that could be the day that the world changes that their life ends that they have to take a life whatever it is they need to be celebrated, and, and that's what I want to do uh, here coming up in December. So it's going to be a great time for people to dress up, have some barbecue, have some live 40s music, you know, out here in the hangar. It's all going to be inside, so I don't care what the weather's going to do. Um, and, and enjoy coming to see some of our airplanes and meet some of our local, you know, law enforcement, EMS, and fire. And I think Airbac is going to land again. So, um, yeah, a lot of good stuff going on. Sounds like a, a, a good time. And I, I like the idea of trying to bring more awareness to the importance more than just Pearl Harbor's attack. These ships are sunk, you know, this is what started the war. I actually dig down deep down into it a little bit and try to bring up that awareness of, you know, the impact. And as you said before, you know, the fact that, you know, we shouldn't have won the war. We had a lot of things going for us. Uh, in the realm of enemies, one, ego, two, lack of communication. Uh, as we talked with Guadalcanal campaign, how it was kind of put together on a shoestring budget. Thank God the Japanese Navy and Army didn't communicate amongst each other or they would have had a better uh, job at maybe winning that campaign. As Henry and I discussed last week, uh, Operation Market Garden, that thing was 
right. voted on, put together, and implemented in seven days. <laughs> they basically uh, came up with it on uh, the 19th, 20th, and started on the 27th. And um, we kind of got into the airborne stuff last week, and I think we'll get into a little bit more. I just want to give a little update for those listening last week. We we did a, a good 20 minutes or so on Operation Market Garden because I honestly only really know about it for what they say about it in Band of Brothers and you know a few other shows I've seen here and there. But if you watch from Band of Brothers, you would think that things didn't really get bad until the boots were on the ground, right? They're, oh, it was a great jump, landing in soft fields. Well, reading <laughs> September Hope, I, I came across some stats. Um, obviously, this book's about the 82nd, the 101st, uh, the Red Devils, and the Polish. But as far as 101st Airborne goes, going with the uh, stuff that Henry's been reading on Band of Brothers, here is before the campaign kicked off on the ground. Here's just some numbers. Um, let me see, blah, blah, blah. Of the 70 gliders that comprised of the 201st Airborne serials, 53 made it to the landing zone. Three aborted over England, one ditched in the channel. Two went down in Belgium. The rest were shot down or released in various spots before the landing zone. 53 gliders that made the landing zone unloaded 32 Jeeps, 13 trailers, 252 troopers. Uh, the better part of two American Airborne divisions were now on the ground. So once again, out of 70 gliders that left for Operation Market Garden, just for 101st Airborne, this isn't 82nd, the Red Devils or the Polish. Out of those 70 gliders, 53 of them landed. But if you're watching Band of Brothers, you think, oh, the flight over, no flak, no interference. Things didn't get crazy until the boots hit the ground. But as you just heard, quite a few of the gliders that didn't suffer from malfunctions actually were shot down, and so were some of the planes. And so, you know, reading this book, you really, you know, you kind of get a true glimpse into how it was pretty touch and go from the time that they got over enemy territory until we had to have the very first, you know, fall back session as dick winters and then point out in band of brothers the first time they've ever actually had the retreat and maybe the fact that they did put this thing together in seven days is a testament to what caused it to fail just because and as we discussed last week the original drop zone for the 101st airborne they were going to be responsible for 30 miles and at the last minute they got montgomery to agree to 15 so if you can just imagine you know the battalions of the 101st trying to cover 30 miles of area. It's just the whole thing was just so, you know, hopeful that it works. But in reading this book, a lot of the commanders and a lot of the heads, you know, uh, Sink and the other guys, after having their initial meeting with Montgomery and the organizers, they kind of left that meeting like this operation is going to be a bloodbath. And so they kind of went into it knowing that they were sort of destined to fail. And so it's always interesting because obviously, as we discussed, uh, many series like that, when you're doing a book, they can't cover all in depth all of the stuff. But um, yeah, it's just interesting to see how Operation Mark Garden was put together and the level of hurt that these guys ran into on the way. That's one thing, you know, and, and I love Band of Brothers. I actually just got through the Bastone parts. And I'm on the last patrol as of a couple of nights ago. But to, to everything you're saying, man, Market Garden, I mean, Nothing against the way Band of Brothers portrayed it, but that's the limitations of a 10-part mm -hmm. film. They can't do it all. But, I mean, as I'm reading Garnier and, and Heffron's book, Brothers in Battle, or, yeah, Be Brothers in Battle, Buster Friends. Yep. Going through that book, it, the Holland stuff was like, I mean, I think I think Garnier said they went like 72 days without a shower. Yeah. And even in this, they talk about Heffron takes shrapnel. Right during during the Holland campaign and and yeah, it's just the the obviously we've heard of Hell's Highway and we know it was a, a rough battle, but unless you actually do the research, you know, you you, you kinda got the impression things were cool until we hit the ground and the bridges started blowing up, but no, it was rough mm -hmm. from, from word get. I thought they kind of covered I mean, because I guess I don't really know too much about Market Garden, but I, I thought the conversation that Winters has with Nixon, you know, when Nixon was talking about how, you know, the plane got hit before they reached the chop zone, boom, you know, he got out and a couple other guys, but everybody else got blown away, you know, and he, the famous, oh, well, it wasn't me. Was that, was that I in mean, the later part, Jeff? Was that like in the, no. uh, cause I just watched last patrol last night and 
it's been you know it's the first time i've watched this is 2010 i think yeah, doesn't that line isn't that like in the part where like the weather's starting to warm up and they go into austria and i'll say that goes not, in nixon's that wasn't the market know. garden campaign that was when nixon got sent in with the 504th or another it wasn't with easy company 506 he was sent out on a mission with another group and it wasn't for operation market garden but oh, yes that's right nixon had okay. more jumps he had one extra combat jump than anybody else in the 506 because he was an s3 and was attached to another unit may even been the 82nd airborne but yes yeah, his, right. his plane I mean, got shot down yeah he, right. yeah so that's what that was referencing to but you know I knew the Operation Market Garden sucked and we got our ass kicked, but, you know, at the precursor of that show, talking to the vets, oh, it was the best jump I ever had, nice soft soil. And so you kind of just got the impression that everything right. was cool until the boots hit the ground, and then that's when stuff blew up. But reading this book, you realize, oh, no, we lost a bunch of planes, a bunch of gliders. Um, the 82nd Airborne had a real hard time of it. And even as we just read, even the 101st lost quite a few gliders and planes before we even made it to the landing zone. And so... Uh, yeah, this is a great book. Um, you know, I found a, a, one or two things in here that didn't get caught by the editor, but um, I thought I read this before. It's been in my library for a while, but I don't know. Sometimes as I'm reading through it, I'm like, this don't even seem like I've read through it once before. So I'm glad I started to reread it. And it's it's definitely a good book. If you guys weren't around for last week's episode, shame on you. Go download it wherever fine podcasts are found. But once again, this is September Hope by John C. McManus. And yes. um, it is a really damn good book. And it... And it really covered, you know, has a lot of the maps and stuff, and you can really see where the landing zones were. And he goes into great details about the the eight separate bridges that they're supposed to capture, and and the last minute decisions. And he goes into some. I don't know, because this was published. I think what did we say last week, Henry? Like, um, nineteen? No, twenty twelve is the first on here, and he must have. I'm sorry, uh, Library of Congress has cataloged the hardcover edition of this as a 1965. Well, that makes more sense because there is a lot of uh, character witness testimonials, whether it's from diaries or from interviews, a mm -hmm. lot of people in there. And they give great detail to, and they say by names, I turned around and saw John Doe, but their real name, get hit with an 88 millimeter and his body still ran 20 yards with all ahead. I mean, it gets pretty pretty gruesome and detailed and they're they're not you know shy of giving the real information out you almost wonder well gee if that guy had family and all they knew is their loved one died in combat and then right 20 years later they're reading this book and they see private first class his full name and here's how he, in great detail so it's pretty rough manis wrote that but it was published in 65 did well, i hear that right well it's 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 weird um on the copyright page Let's see here. Da, 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 da. I'm asking because I just I was looking at my books a couple of days ago, and there are two. Since I'm really into Normandy and Airborne and all that right now, there's there's two books by McManus: The Americans at D-Day and The Americans in Normandy, and they're both by John C. McManus. But I know they're not. Yeah. So it looks like I, this book I'm having here was uh, copyrighted in 2013. But as you know, if you go down to the very very bottom, you get some of the original ones. And as one I said, the Library of Congress has cataloged the hardcover edition of this title as follows. Um, it says McManus, John C. 1965, September Hope, The American Side of the Bridge Too Far, which is the same title as this book. And then if you um, includes biographical references and indexes, okay. And so there's some that must have been where he pulled some of those first-hand accounts because they got yeah, he, they got copyrights from 44, 45. And um, so, yeah, it looks like maybe the first edition was written in 65 of, of this. Yeah, he, he's he's only been writing for the past, I don't know, 25 years or so. Yeah, I that's what I thought. Him. Yeah, I, I spoke to him, oh, I don't know, eight nine ten months ago within the past year okay i did a webinar with him uh about his latest book and i gosh i own it man i can't think of the name of it but it is all about the army in the pacific in world war ii strictly really? from the army yeah the 20 whatever it was 22 army divisions that Do you know the name of it that's i'd kind of like to check that out i can see the cover of it but i couldn't tell you what the title is easy enough to find well but here I, i'll look it up i'm looking it up right now I, when I would, when I did that webinar with him, I was reading another book that he had 
uh, written about the 8th Air Force. And he really opened my eyes to um, just, he shed new light on the bomber mafia, why we did what we did, uh, what happened in Dresden, for example, uh, the timing of some things, why some things didn't work, um, all of that. And, and I don't ask what the name of that book is either. I, you'll be able to Google it well what? enough. And I can Island Infernos. What's that? Island Infernos, the U.S. Army Pacific War Odyssey 1944. This will be released November that's, 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's the second book. What's the first? I think Fire and it, Fortitude. Fire and Fortitude. That's the that's the one. Huh, and then okay. you, yeah. yeah, you really uh, really got to look up the one. Uh, Fire and Fortitude is is it's an enormous. It's it's kind of along the lines if you've ever read Ian Toll and his trilogy yeah. on the Pacific. That's on my Christmas list. And then he has The Dead and Those About to Die, uh, Grunts, Deadly Sky, September Hope. Deadly Sky. Deadly Sky. That's his on the bombing campaign. Oh, man, is it great. And it was awesome. I got the opportunity to kind of talk to him before we went live to tell him and ask him a few questions that I had about that book. But This guy's prolific, man. Yeah, he's also got... Yeah, on the Orden. That looks good. I love Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's awesome. Hell he's Before awesome. Their Years, Island Inferno, Alamo and Yardans, American at D-Day, The Deadly Brothers. And I want to say he's in, like, Missouri, I want to say. I, I can't remember. I, I want to say he's still a professor somewhere. I want to say he's at Mizzou. Uh, don't quote me on that, but. American Courage, American Carnage, about the 7th Infantry. Then he has another book yeah. on the 7th Infantry. St. Louis. Okay. Yeah. I just friend requested him on Facebook and he accepted it. Um, oh, there you go. Once again, Henry's way cooler than us. We get it. This dude, you know, riding on the World War II train and, you know, all that cool stuff. <laughs> well, no, Jeff's I'm the one who rides on the cubicle. World War II tra- train. <laughs> but I'll be on the World War II train uh, next weekend, not this weekend. Next weekend, we have the one that we had discussed a few times, which is VKE at the um, Florida Train Museum. And that's one where we kind of incorporate a living history battle reenactment, three skirmishes into this eight-mile train ride that the public gets to take. And so that's why I got Steve all done up in his 81st, his 82nd Airborne, because that's the one of the few events I actually do airborne. The rest of them either doing Marine or infant, uh, First ID. So, But, yeah, that's coming up uh, next weekend, so I'm excited for that. Um I got to go get some new microphones for the At Computers um, podcast studio in a box because as we go to Living History events, I like to do interviews. And the last one we were at, I discovered that my microphone cables had shorts in them. And so I need to go get some new microphones. And thanks to At Computers for sponsoring the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast and all the other podcasts here on the Digital 410 Network. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. And even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, they can help you as long as you have working internet. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. They can log in your computer, help you with virus removal and any little anomalies you can't figure out. Why every time you launch Outlook, you get an SSL certificate error, even though you hit import 23 times. Um, why ever since Windows 10 updated, now you can't print the shared printers. All that fun stuff, they can help you. And if you do live here in Southwest Florida, give them a call at 239-283-1120. They can help you with computer repair, laptop repair, um, ghosting your hard drives over to the new SSD drive, network administration, and on and on. That's 239-283-1120. And since we're in a commercial break, here's one that I did a while back. You know, I have all these little catalogs of things I, I haven't done in a while, so hold tight. Spam was introduced by Hormel in 1937. The product was intended to increase the sales of pork shoulder, which wasn't very popular at the time. Hormel claims the meaning of the name is known only by a small circle of former Hormel food executives, but popular beliefs are that the name is an abbreviation for spiced ham, spare meat, or shoulder of pork and ham. Another popular explanation is spam is actually an acronym standing for specially processed army meat. Due to the difficulties of delivering fresh meat to the front during World War II, Spam became an ubiquitous part of the United States soldiers' diet. Some jokingly referred to Spam as ham that didn't pass its physical or meatloaf without basic training. By the war's end, over 150 pounds of Spam had been purchased by the United States military. During World War II and the occupations that followed, Spam was introduced into Guam, Hawaii, Okinawa, and the Philippines. 
as well as other islands in the Pacific. As consequences of World War II's rationing in the Lend-Lease Act, Spam also gained prominence in the United Kingdom. In addition to increasing production for the United Kingdom, Hormel also expanded output as part of the Allies' aid to the similarly beleaguered Soviet Union. Nikita Khrushchev once declared, without Spam we wouldn't have been able to feed our army. Throughout the war, countries ravaged by conflict and faced with strict food rationings came to appreciate the value of Spam. Mm, spam. It's a delight. Hey, hey, Jeff, I'm glad you said all that, man, because seeing all those books by McManus, other than the two I've got on my shelf, all those others, that gives me some Christmas gift ideas, because I was going to ask for the Ian Toll trilogy. I mean, a must, a must, yeah. but, but yeah, McManus is, is awesome. Um, while we're on the topic of books, cause I got to get the taste of spam out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> you don't like spam? Actually, I love it. <laughs> I, I, I could eat spam. I have no problem with it. I mean, when I do my presentations, we talk about spam with, with the K rations, like, look guys, it, you know, I'll, I'll ask the crowd if they've ever had an MRE. You know, people raise their hand and I'll ask them if they like the MRE. Most of them put their hand down like, look, you just weren't hungry enough. Mm -hmm. I never had a bad MRE. Um, but just like spam, you know, the, the acronyms get, get screwed around. You know, meal ready to eat is what it MRE is supposed to be. But it's usually a meal that is uh, refusing exit. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway uh, so real quick, since we're on books, I just finished this one up. Oh, boy. Um, dumb. But lucky, it's the confessions of a P-51 fighter pilot in World War II by Dick Curtis. Uh, it's a Ballantine book um, publishing, but uh, I don't know if it's still in print or not. What a, just such a neat, like, down-home, um, no heroics kind of guy. Um, maybe a little overdone with the hypothetical questions because the whole theme is his title, Dumb But Lucky. He constantly, like dogs on himself about how bad he is and how he was told, you know, it was stamped. He would never be a pilot, um, but kind of kept eking his way through. And then even when he got there, he just couldn't help himself. Like he would just, he would leave his sunglasses, you know, in the mess hall. He would leave his bus tickets to go to the next training station somewhere and had to thumb a ride. And then that car would break down. And then, you know, he would finally get back and somebody stole his A2 jacket. Like, <laughs> The guy just and he, and he had he always was putting up with this weird uh, swelling in his face, like one eye he'd wake up, one eye'd be swollen, or like his lips would be all popped up, like couldn't get his oxygen mask to sit on right. But the guy did like 50 missions for the 15th Air Force um, in a really weird time. They were pushing him over to to Foggia, Italy, so quickly. He was supposed to have 200 hours in a P-51 before he ever saw action. And, uh, you know, he, he crashed, I don't know how many trainers he was delivering P forties to the three thirty second. you know, the famed Tuskegee airman, he's flying him over there, crashes a P 40 on landing, <laughs> you know, like never really should have done what he did, but he ends up 50 some missions. His first combat mission in the P 51 was like, he had less than 40 hours at the control, something like oh, that. Wow. Yeah. Do you have any kills? Uh, you know, I think he got a half, uh, I don't really remember. He didn't really go into it a whole lot. He got a DFC for, for, for escorting on one mission. Um, they actually, they, they picked up a down pilot and the dude climbed behind the pilot seat in the 51 where the radio set goes. Um, but yeah, they landed in enemy territory and he hopped in and crawled in behind him and, and, and this guy kind of escorted him and. Um, I think he got a half kill because he basically his wingman got the kill, but he protected his wingman six. So I didn't realize if you if your wingman is engaged in the kill and you stay with him, you don't have to fire a shot. You share that kill with him, which hmm. I think is incredible right. um, learning how they do that. But um, one quick story that just sticks out, like I said, just that kind of that raw um just the weird, goofy things that happen at war. So uh, the winter of 44, and I had no idea Italy had such terrible winter. I, I plan on one day just kind of spending a year learning about the Mediterranean campaign and, and conquer. I, I would just love to, to learn more about that. But so he's, he's stationed in Foggia, Italy, and, you know, pretty close where the Tuskegee Airmen were. And 
really bad winter. Monsoon type rains, mud everywhere. He talks about every time they took a Jeep out, he's, you know, getting it stuck. He's flooding it. You know, he's, of course, always, always getting in trouble for stuff like that. Um, but the weather finally broke. You know, this is right before the, the Germans surrendered in, in March and of 45. The weather finally broke. Everybody's antsy. They just want to get up and fly again. And he's concerned he's never going to finish his 50 mission, you know, before the war ends. Um, so weather finally breaks. They're out there. They build a volleyball court. And he's out there playing volleyball. And they see these two P-38s just playing around over their head, you know, just practice dogfighting. And for the one pilot to kind of get the edge on the other, he drops his wing tanks. And no big deal, except one tank lands uh, something like 100 yards from their volleyball court. No big deal. You know, landed in a field. Another one happened to land directly on a tent where one of the Tuskegee Airmen was in there in the middle of the day, kind of taking a nap, oh, hanging out. Damn. And there was still a lot of avgas in this drop tank. So it hits the tent. Uh, the heater was still on, you know, the little, their little stove was on in the tent. So of course, everything is covered in avgas, including the pilot that was in the tent. Uh, so everything busts in the flames. The pilot runs out of the tent. And of course, once he gets out into the open air, all that oxygen does is feed that flame. He says he, he saw the pilot run about 20, 30 feet from the tent and then just crumples and burns in the middle of a field, catches the entire field on fire. And, you know, obviously that pilot doesn't come home. Just the weird stuff like that, you know, that that just happens in, in combat. And, you know, as rough as combat is, being over there, uh, is just as deadly an affair. And I was in combat arms. You know, I don't really know anything about logistics. I was just a dude with a machine gun on a Humvee. But I know w with logistics, with, and of course, World War II was the biggest logistical problem ever in the history of the American military. How many people died that, you know, weren't carrying a gun, weren't flying an airplane, weren't driving a tank, you know, the way civilians think. Just the can't, just to go to war cost so many lives not lost you know in, in action and, and it just books like that sometimes need you need reminders of that um you know to kind of open your eyes is just uh how um costly going to war is before we ever get there you know yeah i don't so think really, a, I, don't really think a, I don't think a lot of people realize how many service personnel even to this day are lost in just training training exercises I mean, we hear it all the time about helicopters crashing and training exercises and, and the personnel lost. And it was, you know, obviously back then at a greater scale because we had more people involved, you know, slapped in sands and all that stuff. So that's a very good point. If We lost a lot of people, some training, some of them just sleeping in his tent trying to get a few winks before he had gotten to his training. It's just crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I, know. I read that book a number of years ago. You probably did, yeah. I, I like the, and you know, you said he got like one or one and a half kills. Yeah, I, I don't remember the time. He didn't exactly. I, I love the memoirs by pilots. You know, we all hear about the Francis Gabreskis and the guys who just shot down these huge. I, I'm just as interested in the guy who, I don't care if he got a kill or not, man. If he was there yeah. flying operational missions, I could get, you know, just as excited by that. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm reading one now. And by the next time we probably have an episode, I'll be done with it about a, a radio operator gunner on a B-17 in the 8th Air Force. Uh, he, mm -hmm. he published it, self-published, I think, like three books, 60 some years later. And um, yeah, is it, it, he's nobody, nobody special, you know, he, um, but just just so far, just reading about the irony of him doing basic training in Amarillo, Texas in the summer, mm -hmm. then getting sent to Sioux Falls for radio training in the dead of winter <laughs> and then um, machine gun training in Yuma, Arizona in the summer. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, the army just kind of knows they, they know how to screw you, you know, in every possible way. Um, but yeah, just, just, just hearing about, um, he, he, he not only just kind of tells his story, but he really pads it with, okay, this is what was going when I was in radio operator training, you know, still in the States, this is what the eighth air force was doing summer of 43. You know, then he gets there to England, and this is a guy that got the Medal of Honor, a ball turret gunner on his first mission. You know, things like that, that 
his comrades, you know, so he kind of helps right. fill those gaps. It gives you context. Set the tone. Exactly. Yeah. He really sets the stage with, with some of the other stuff. So yeah, I mean, memoirs are great. Uh, if for that nitty gritty, you know, and like I've told Don before, I, I, I don't read too many because a lot of times I want to learn about the battle. I want to learn about the campaign. I don't want to know about the guy that saw right. the war like this. Right. Um, but there is a place for that. And once you kind of understand the campaign, you understand the battle, then I, that's when I like to enjoy, okay, I want the personal, I want the nitty gritty. I want to, I want to smell it now, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, that's why, like I was telling Don before we got on, I mean, I'm big band of brothers kick. I just finished we who are alive and who remain by Brotherton, Marcus Brotherton. Um, I just finished that. I picked up, or we had a signed copy of, uh, the Babe Heffron and Bill Garnier's books. So I'm reading that, but you know, Jeff, we like these Osprey books, man. Uh, so I pulled the one off my shelf, Operation Cobra, you know, so I'm rereading that along with Garnier's book and Heffron's, you know, just to kind of try to, it helps keep all the pieces together. Right. Exactly. Is Don even with us? Did yeah, we, no, I was, I, we were talking about memoirs. Whiskey. Uh, <laughs> no, I ran to my shelf because um, before I left work in radio, my, the guy I worked for got me this book called The Last Fighter Pilot. And um, the book's autographed by the author. It was supposed to be autographed by the, the gentleman who the book is about, but he came uh, extremely sick, and so he wasn't able to autograph the book. But um, the reason I call him the last fighter pilot is he actually went out on a mission. He he fought over the Pacific, and him and his um, wingman went out on a mission on the last day of the war. And they did not get the memo that the Japanese signed the 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 uh, peace treaty, and his wingman got shot down. And um, I was trying to find the wingman's name, and um, I'll update you guys next week because I wasn't planning on talking about it. Uh, that wingman, to this day, has the highest IQ of any of, any Air Force pilot and also just happened to be the grandfather to the actress uh, Scarlett Johansson. So um, it was a crazy little thing at the end of this book, and I was trying to thumb through the end of the last chapter to find the, the, the gentleman's name because you guys were talking about Air Corps and... and um, autobiographies and like that so another one if you guys are for those of you listening who are into the air corps and all that check out the the last fighter pilot um it's the true stories of the final combat mission of world war ii by don brown with captain jerry yellen so captain jerry yellen is who the book is about it's a great read i got it a few years back so that's another one to add to your all's collection if especially if you like the pacific and air corps stuff you can wrap it all up in one book Henry, you got some exciting stuff coming up. I want to make sure we get those plugs in before uh, we start wrapping things up. So what do you got coming up? You have something going on November 5th? Yeah, November 5th. Uh, I was, well, because of our friend Brian Dimitrovich, he had been on Paul Woodage's World War II TV. So um, he got he got Paul to reach out to me, and so I'm going to be on World War II. As it stands right now, November 5th. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. My correspondence with him via email has been been really cool. Um, and then Veterans Day going to be on, um, there's a show, it's a Zoom show called Greatest Generation Live. It's part of the Veterans Breakfast Council. And I've just had the, the first planning call this afternoon when I first got, I mean, like I got home from work and had to jump on with that gentleman. Um, so that's Veterans Day. So you got a Don't lot mention of, anything else. Uh, those are the two you covered in the pre-show, but yeah, you, you've been staying busy. Uh, com compliments to you, sir. You well, I mean, I try to plug our show every chance I get. That's great. I'm just excited you know, for you because when you were first brought into my attention via one Galen Wagner, you kind of said, hey, I, I was in this for a while, kind of got burnt out to it. I want to get back mm -hmm. into it. And you just straight up did a triple lindy in the deep end i mean yeah, you want to I get mean, back into it you're into it it's really i mean i'm having fun with all this and and i kind of like what we have here the three of us this is like a you know kind of the home base for me sure you know, i mean i enjoy like i said i really do try to plug this show i was on mitchell bell's show last tuesday uh which you guys are going to be on there right tall tales of taco 
Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's still in the works, but um, it's it's in the ether. It's we haven't tackled down a date yet, but we're I think we're on their long list somewhere. He he got back with me. He can come on here with us. Sounds like November he could do anytime except Tuesday nights. Okay. So let's agree on a night and line him up. Sure, we'll we'll hammer that out off the air. Um, but yeah, no, I'm just excited. Everybody's Jeff's got great things going on. You got great things going on. My my uh, season's about ready to kick off, and um, kind of getting back into posting stuff back on Instagram. And uh, oh, Jeff, you said you had a new toy or two. I think uh, to add to your collection that you were talking. You you have those with you, or you want to talk about them? Yeah, I've, I've got one thing with me, and then another. I'm gonna have to just send you a picture. Um, one thing I'm just I'm really proud of it, and, and that's gonna be the picture I'll, I'll send you. We you can post it if you want. I got a buddy of mine give me a really nice. It's it's reproduction. He got it when he was over in Carrington, but it is a beautiful uh, bullion Eighth uh, Air Force patch for my for my pinks and greens uh, nice. to kind of complete my my dress uniform. I mean, it is just, it's just an awesome patch. You know, I just, I, I never really thought I was going to ever own one. And, uh, I usually don't go after repro stuff a whole lot, but this is just, I mean, I, you know, he gave it to me. He's like, look, dude, I had it when I was over there, got it for like whatever, 15 bucks American. Yeah. He's like, you're a bigger fan of this than I am. So here you go. Sew this thing on. Uh, so, uh, hopefully I'll, um, I- I'm looking at going to, there's a, there's a big hangar dance down in San Marcos, Texas, at the at the Tex Hill wing of the CAF uh, coming up. I think it's the Saturday, right after Veterans Day. I want to say they have the Sentimental Journey uh, band, big I don't know, twelve piece orchestra, whatever, big you know, live music, beer, wine, dinner, and in, in, in their big hangar down there. That and that's where that's all, brother. The C forty seven that that led all of the forty sevens over the English Channel at, at the night of D Day. Um, you know, that, that aircraft is for people who don't know, that is fully restored, uh, airworthy and painted up exactly like it was the night that it took off, uh, for D-Day. So it's really cool to see a tab, you know, down there. That's all brother. Um, so I'll send you a picture of that. It'd be cool little, uh, you know, candy for your, for the uh, Instagram or whatever. And then I picked up one of these try to put it in the camera where we can pick it up it's it's just uh what uh air corps uh, uh airman would be issued it's just a basically a fake light waterproof uh match case mm-hmm. keep your to keep your matches uh you know dry just just goof around on, on ebay every night like i usually do the, the striker's missing off the bottom but like seven bucks you know to put in my musette bag i, I basically have just about everything uh that uh are almost everything that i've seen in in some of these hardbound books about uh the air corps what these guys would be carrying as far as signal mirrors first aid kits extra razors pencils fishing kits have you seen those the fishing kits i wish about Ah. two years ago i came across one at an antique store and it was kind of pricey i wasn't sure what it was so i googled it uh, I did not realize that, the, and most people don't, the Army Air Corps, because they travel over water, and the, if they're lucky enough to deflate their, to inflate their raft, they had fishing kits with hooks yeah. and lines issued. issued, and everyone carried yeah. one. And like I said, I found one at an antique store, and I should have picked it up when I had the chance. It's probably not there now, but... yeah. Just, and then the last thing is, is uh, of course, this won't help our, our listeners, but if you guys are streaming on YouTube right now, this is an original A2 uh, that was given to me. I was just a kid uh, by the father of, of a neighbor where I grew up who he flew. He shuttled B-17s. Uh, he didn't fly them in combat, so he kind of really had the same role as, like, uh, our wasps, mm-hmm. really. Um uh, I know he flew from the Northeast. I don't know if he even got him as far. I don't know if he took him all the way to England. I, I remember him talking about Newfoundland or Iceland, you know, somewhere in between the stops in between. So I don't know if he only flew there and then they got another pilot. I don't know. Cause I, I, I'm not real. I'm, I'm not real savvy on some of the way that that happened. I mean, I, I've read some memoirs where these guys get together and they'll, you know, after they all do their special training here in the States, depending on where they're at in, in the crew, then they're assigned to, to, you know, the crew is assigned together in a place like Walla Walla, Washington or something like that. 
And that's where they get their brand new B-17 and they fly it over to England. And then, of course, a lot of times they're a brand new crew, brand new B-17. So it's like, okay, well, that's not y'all's airplane. You guys get this bust up B-17E model. This brand new FRG is going to go to the experienced crews. You know, there's a lot of times what happened. Um, but anyway, so, I, I mean, it's just, I, I've never, I've never worn it, guys. I, I've had this jacket for almost 30 years, probably. And uh, I thought, yeah. Henry said something about we're all going to be together and have our threesome tonight. So I figured I would. Why not put on your coat? <laughs> I I'm figured so... I would feel. I wanted to know what twenty five. You wanted to have leather like shoulders. <laughs> Jeff wanted Hell leather. Bent for on. leather. You know, I'm so envious of of cats like Jeff who have the the height and the frame to wear of that original stuff because, you know, I've come across it. You know, at the occasional store, someone selling some stuff, and it's like with my six foot five frame, none of that stuff fits me even. Well, Jeff, you're really tall, aren't you? No, I'm five eleven. Okay, yeah, I thought you were like six four, six five. No, nah, he's a wee oh little gosh. one. 5'11", 175 with a size 9D boot, man. I, I am World War II. Okay. <laughs> hey, Toy, what well, size boot do you wear? Size 9 like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> Just watch the goddamn line. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, what pair of nasty skivvies, two cottons of K rations. That's bullshit. <laughs> Where are you going to put your brass knuckles? Right. Oh man, I loved it with her, you know, oh Garnier, man, he's doing the Did just that day on the nose of the plane is the name of the broad that day, babe got one of them Webster, what do you call them letters from the from the broads? A dear John letter. Yeah, dear babe letter. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Good stuff. That's a beautiful A too, Jeff. Well, I've got a I've got a real nice repro one that I use, you know, that I wear. I mean, it is it is awesome, but it doesn't quite fit the way I want it to. You know, this one fits more like Marlon Brando. It's a boxier fit. It's Mm -hmm. really, I mean, it's like a forty regular. I mean, it is nice. It's slim. Yeah, the one I have is a forty four, and you know, somebody made me feel better. Like, look, man. Uh, that's the kind of ja- that's what you would want because you're not going to wear it with your white t-shirt riding your Harley. Right. You know, you're going to have all this other stuff. So guys would have preferred a little bit more room in it. So, you know, right. it's probably a little bit more accurate than what you saw Matthew Modine wearing and, you know, Billy Zane right. and the Memphis Bell kind of thing. That's I, the way that it's, but I've got a, um, an M422A, which is the Navy Marine flight jacket. It's a repro. But I got it 20 years ago. But it beautiful jacket. And thanks to you, I mean, I should have plugged it right away, man. I got the Hubert shoe grease yeah. and the saddle soap yeah. and worked it over like several nights ago. It's beautiful, man. Yeah. But uh, I want an A2. I've never had an A2. But, I, I mean, I love that M422A because it's Navy Marine, you know. Right. But uh, I've yeah. always wanted an A2 as well. So. Well, if you I'm ever. I'm thinking about. Um painting my repro a2 i was gonna say if you ever want to pull that trigger uh one of the guys who's part of the florida fly boys he does them and he's painted like four or five of them and they look top notch i'll have to send you some photos of the ones he's done but he's done he did uh the ones that the guys who let me wear their equipment when we did the memphis bell shoot those are the florida fly boys and uh the three main guys had that up all of them were painted by the same guy and he did a damn good job on them Uh, yeah no i'm you know here in my back pocket i'm also an artist so i would i'm gonna paint my own actually um but uh yeah i i uh, i don't know i may share it with you so my wife did some really cool she had a really cool photo shoot she's done a couple uh some that were just totally boudoir that you guys aren't gonna see <laughs> but a, a couple that were just more like 40s pinup kind of stuff and so that's what i'm gonna do I, you know her name's uh, tammy her middle name's lou so I'm going to kind of, I'm going to paint her on the back. I'm going to change the color of what she's wearing, kind of the, the outfit that she's wearing. Uh, and then I'm going to put Tammy Lou kind of uh, in a, you know, a forties font. font, I guess, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the word would be. And that's probably what I'm going to put on the side of my, uh, my Jeep as well. When I get that hey, running. Let me ask you this, Jeff, cause you would be, you're in the flight gear just like I am. So you'd be a good one to know. I need, I really want to get my hands on, I don't care. I mean, 
original, probably not an option, but a squadron patch, VMF-114. The VMF-114 Death Dealers, they were a Corsair squadron. They were the squadron that was on Peleliu flying yeah. close air support during the battle. Oh, yeah. And stay tuned on that. I've, I've got a con. I'm working on something with somebody who's related to their their CO. He got shot down by Flak March 4th, 45. But um, I, because, you know, Corsair is my first love. Peleliu, you know, personal connection there. I would love to get a, I don't care if it's repro, but a somehow get a squadron patch for VMF-114. Do you know somebody who, like, you could say, hey, man, do me a squadron patch for blah, blah, blah. Do you know anybody who does that with all your contacts? Man, I, I, I don't, but gosh, I've got a ton of patches. There, there's there's an antique shop up in Salado that has a bunch of them, but they're more like bomb groups. They're, they're 8th Air Force bomb groups that, you know, I... Sure. I, I, I'm trying to think of some. I've got some VMF patches. I'd have to go look and see what all I've. I don't think I've got 114, but I, I'll keep my eye out for sure. You've got well, man. Let me interrupt. Is this the go red ahead, skull with the um, the suits from the cards around it with the X? Is that what the patch right looks like? The the patch you're talking about is that the one with the red skull with the uh, diamonds, the spade, the heart, and the club forming the X it, in the background? No, it shows a hand with a with a hand of cards that the cards make up like ace ace four. Okay, because I'm looking at a oh yeah, there's one right here. Um, yeah, I'm seeing it. This looks like a zombie hand. It's green. Yeah, kind, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I'm looking Jeff, at some if you, here. If, man, World War II Marine Aviation. If you have some cool patches that that are VMF patches that you think are, are they original or repro? Uh, I I think everything I've got is original. I'd have to. Would look you be willing to? I may have some repro stuff. Would you be willing to sell some of those VMF patches? Oh no, I'd be willing to mail them to you. <laughs> okay. Jeez. Yeah. I'd, yeah. World War II Marine it. Aviation, man. I just. Yeah. Let, I'll, I'll tell you, you what. You'd appreciate. I, I got to meet, and he's still around. Um, he, uh, Colonel, uh, I'm trying to think of his first name, McPhail, M C P H a i l i got to talk to him i've talked to him a couple times at, at air shows he flew with the 322 the death rattlers yes vmf uh, 322 in okinawa yeah yep. he was on okinawa and then he flew with them again in korea okay um, he oh man and i've, I've got a great eight by ten glossy him that he signed he's standing you know just his summer flight suit a may west flight helmet nice. and he's got his hand up on the prop of his Corsair, you know, on a dusty runway in Okinawa. It's a beautiful picture I got hanging in my office at home. But nice. Um, yeah, I I got some I've got some stuff like that for sure. Let, let me let going. me throw this since we're on the subject. I mean, Jeff, do we have a few minutes? Or are you trying to shut it down? Wow, we're Is good. Don yet? Man, we're or good. Don, I'm sorry. I got my bourbon. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> so since since we're touching on this, uh, so VMF one fourteen. Because, you know, when I went to Peleliu in 1999, I remember walking around that airfield just, you know, I've been obsessed with Corsairs since I was a kid because of my dad talking about them. I knew that when I came back, started really reading and learning about all of it, I knew that 114 was the squadron that was on Peleliu. There were a couple of others as well. But the uh, probably a month ago, I just got on my computer one night and just typed in VMF 114 see what would pull in it pulls in picture of robert cowboy stout who was there robert f stout was their co he was from laramie wyoming he flew with him on peleliu all the missions that would have supported my dad and his guys and then once the ground marines moved off of course vmf 114 stayed there just kept flying missions up to the northern plow islands and also against yap they were flying missions against yap because it was like 400 miles away or something like that. Anyway, come to find out, there is a cousin of Robert Stout's named Damon Stout who lives in L.A., and he's a guy about my age. He's a filmmaker, and he's making a documentary about VMF-114. So he and I, I called him, or I, I emailed him. I said, man, I just, you know, I told him who I was. Sends me a nice email the next day. Said, yeah, I've read your dad's book. I know, I know who your dad was. I'd love to talk to you about anything Corsairs, Peleliu, whatever. And so, long story, we had several conversations, and he asked me to collaborate with him on this documentary. And uh, 
I don't know when it'll come out. He's done most of the filming, but he and his wife moved and he's, he's kind of hit a, a lull, but we will do a zoom call every now and then we, we email back and forth. And, but I mean, he sent me guys, he sent me like nine, I don't, I don't know, nine megabytes worth of pictures and stuff from, from some of the veterans of VMF 114. And, and some of them are like Joe Bauer who was in VMF 212 on Guadalcanal. Um, and Jack Conger was VMF 212 Guadalcanal. A lot of them are pictures of those guys in their wildcats back in those days. So I've been going through all these pictures. I printed a bunch of them out to frame them later when I have a room where I can go crazy with World War II stuff. <laughs> but uh, anyway, man, I mean, I'm excited about this film. I hope it, you yeah. know, I don't know what my role in it will be, but he was like, man, you, you seem to know your stuff pretty well about about this World War II Peleliu stuff. So, you know. Are you familiar with Glenn Bud Daniel? Yeah, I've got. I just got his book, Cowboy, Cowboy Down. Down. I'm looking at. I was going to ask you because I'm looking at. Yeah, eBay. he, Glenn. So Damon, Damon Stout, flew, found Glenn Bud Daniel, and who's now passed away, and interviewed him and, and extensively and all that. But yeah, I, I've got a copy of his book because I found out about it that night. <laughs> I'm like, oh wow, Cowboy's wingman wrote a book. Okay, um, I don't think, but about half the book really deals with World War II aviation. But but I still want to read it nonetheless. Uh, but I yeah, Cowboys. Like, go ahead, man. I was say I feel like the next time you talk to this Damon Stout, you're you're just gonna have to drop my IMDb profile <laughs> to him in case you need another actor for this. Oh yeah, <laughs> maybe I need to. I mean, I feel like that's the thing to do here. <laughs> what? Well, so I asked him if he'd like to come on our show sometime. You know, and I'm thinking the time for that is let us get a little closer. To, to where this thing's gonna sure. you know really start coming together but uh i want him to come on the show and plug it because anything world war ii marine aviation vmf 114 but what is your your imdb profile oh it's just my name <laughs> yeah, i mean gonna... believe it or not i have one out there too just because i've been interviewed in so many documentaries oh yeah we we can link up but yeah it's just but my you name. I mean, you've been like a consultant on some films. Haven't well, he you? has, he was actually, he has, he was on film. He has airtime in a walking point. He has lines. Okay. And uh, in an episode for the history channel from 2018, that was my first acting gig. But then, yeah, for walking point, I was actor and costume and military advisor. Wow. That's right. I saw that on y'all's website before I even, I mean, Don, I had just, like Galen had just told me, yeah, I know this guy named Don Abernathy has a, a podcast. Maybe he'll let you come, let you come on there. Um, and I remember seeing you guys talking about Walking Point. Yep. Um, I don't know where. I mean, you know, I I think the guys put some trailers out there on it, and he went to Peleliu and filmed some really moving footage. The cool thing about Robert Stout, Cowboy Stout, they call him, he was a six kill ace from Ball Canal. Wow. Uh, back in the battles of, you know, all the, when all the Solomon stuff was going on, he was, he was quite the pilot, but, um, tragically shot down March 4th of 45 over one of the Northern Plow islands by flak. Um, they found uh, some Palauan fishermen in 1947, found his air, found his Corsair and his, his remains were sent home, but his Corsair is still out there somewhere. Hmm. Did you guys see the news footage? I guess the, there's some volcanic activity in the ocean near Japan and some of their sunken World War II. Uh, they were out yeah. there, transport and uh, yeah, ships have come up and they're like just chilling on the beach now. Oh, wow. I yeah. didn't see that. No. Yeah, that. Sorry, I'm ordering a book. <laughs> I'm not even because I'm talking. I'm ordering a, a Peleliu book I just found. But. Uh, yeah. Which one is it? Oh, uh, Pel Pel the tri uh, tragic triumph. Bill D. Ross. Yep. Okay, yeah, it's a good one. Uh, let's see, uh, Japanese. Hey, um, have you guys ever heard of Saul David? Um, well, as I explained last week, I'm not quite as good at remembering the the authors of the books I read. I'm I'm working on that, but that name does not come off the top He's, of my head right away. Okay. British historian, he, this is one of his books, Crucible of Hell, about Okinawa. Uh, Paul Eisen on the cover. 
yes, the <laughs> iconic photo. Yeah. Um, one of my conversations with Richard Frank here not too long ago, Rich told me that Saul wrote a book about K-35 and, uh, through the whole war. And, um, of course, I hadn't heard of it because it's not published yet. Well, Rich got Saul in touch with me, and Saul sent, the, sent me the manuscript and said, would you please read it? So I'm in the process of doing that. Um, so it's supposed to be published, I think, in 22 next year. But um, about 180 pages into a 337-page th thing there. So, but it's pretty cool because I mean I knew K three five when my dad was with them, but it was interesting to read about them from, you know, exactly where they were at Guadalcanal and Cape Gloucester. That'd be a great book to check out when it comes out. Obviously, you'll you'll know the release dates and it's still in pre production now. Real quick on that story: Japanese mystery as ghost ships rise to the surface off island following following volcanic activity, the emerging hulks are the remainders of 24 Japanese transport vessels captured by the U.S. Navy in the spring of 1945 at the end of World War II and deliberately scuttled off the western coast of the island to form a port. During that time, the island had no serviceable port facilities, so the sunken vessels were used as breakwaters to protect other unloading men and supplies for troops during the battle with the Japanese. The blueprints have been to form an—I'm sorry— their blueprints have been to form artificial naval bases to support huge U.S. military bases on the island prior to the assault on mainland Japan. But yeah, there's pretty cool like drone footage of them just sitting on the uh, on the beaches now from the wow. from the tide change and um, from the volcano that they were having underwater volcanic activity. So I think that happened last week. I think that is just about going to wrap it up for this week of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Um, any final words, either Jeff or Henry? Good to be back glad with to be you. Here. Yeah, just glad to be here, man. really appreciate y'all letting me be a part of this. And I am thrilled to have you guys. And as always, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. You can go back and listen to all our episodes going all the way back to episode one, back in the early days. You can find photos. Um, we do have a section called Those Who Are There. You can hear the interviews we did with vets. I was telling Henry last week I need to find all the author interviews and make a separate page so you guys can easily listen to interviews that we did with authors. And while you're there, click on that Patreon link and set up and subscribe a Patreon account. It's a dollar a month for the cheapest one. There's one at seven fifty a month. You get a free T-shirt after month two. And please like and subscribe our YouTube channel so you get notifications every time we stream live, whether it's a Sunday, a Monday, perhaps even a Tuesday, because, you know, well, that's how we do things around here. For myself... Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. I want to thank each and every one of you for hanging out with us for another episode of the show, and we will talk to you all next week. Thank you so much, you guys. This has been a Digital 410 production. 